Welcome to our weekly Church on the Rock podcast. For more information, visit us at churchak.org, download our Church on the Rock AK app, or like us on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy our weekly podcast. have something to praise God about for what has happened in 2023. Let's give the Lord some praise for who he is, for his goodness as we sang, and all that he's done for us. Well, I was getting interviewed uh, by Kimberly Sliwa for the moment, and the early, uh, right before the first, this first service started, and she was asking me about the transition from Washington back to Alaska. And so, uh, I, got, I got a little parable I want to share with you to show the difference of living in Washington from living in Alaska, and really this shows you the difference of trying to make something complicated instead of just having a simple solution. And it's a parable that goes like this, a parable of the governor of Washington and the governor of Alaska. The governor of Washington is jogging with his dog along a nature trail. A coyote jumps out and attacks the governor's dog, killing it, and bites the governor. The governor starts to intervene, but reflects upon the movie Bambi, and then realizes he should stop because the coyote is only doing what is natural. He calls animal control. Animal control comes and captures the coyote and bills the state $500, testing it for diseases, and $2,500 for capturing it and then releasing it somewhere else. He calls a veterinarian. The vet collects the dead dog and bills the state $1,200, testing it for diseases. And then the governor goes to the hospital and spends $3,500 getting checked for diseases from the coyote and getting his bite (laughs) wound bandaged. The running trail gets shut down for six months while Fish and Game conducts a $100,000 survey to make sure the area is now free of dangerous animals. The governor of Washington spends $200,000 in state funds implementing a coyote awareness program for residents of the area. The state legislature spends $2 million to study how to better treat rabies and how to permanently eradicate the disease throughout the world. The governor's security guard is fired. A new one is trained, and it costs the state $150,000 to hire the new agent, train him in a special coyote awareness protection. PETA protests the coyote's relocation to another area and sues the state for $5 million. Now Alaska. The governor of Alaska is jogging with his dog along a nature trail. A coyote jumps out and attacks his dog. The governor reaches into his holstered 45 <laughs> pistol, shoots the coyote, and keeps jogging. He used a state-issued, used a 250-grain, 45 colt. It cost 75 cents. An eagle and ravens eat the dead coyote. 
and Alaskans continue to enjoy the nature trail. And that, my friends, is the difference of Washington and Alaska, the last frontier, amen? Man, that was a pretty good shout there on that. That's, all I'm trying to say is that there's a, a difference of taking responsibility with a simple action as compared to making something really complicated. What we're not trying to do in this series, even though it's a four-week series that we're going to be unpacking, many stories in the Bible of when men and women of God fasted, we're not trying to make this complicated. Prayer and fasting is very simple. It's a practice. It's a pursuit of an awareness to God, to hear His voice and to connect with His purposes. We fast to seek and to submit to God's will. In fasting, we are demonstrating that more than enjoying food, we delight greater in our relationship with God. And the more we pursue God in all of His glory, the more we, re we reflect God in every facet of our lives. I want to just share a few testimonies personally of fasting over the years. It was February of 1988, and I was in the little log cabin church in Willow, which is, that building is now the Willow Church on the Rock campus, and I was there for, in those years we had early morning prayer, an hour before the service, and uh, I was there in a time of prayer. I'd been fasting and just just pursuing Jesus, and and the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, I'm bringing her into your life now. I'm bringing your wife into your life. Two weeks later, I met Lorraine. Six months after that, we were married, and now four children, son-in-law over here, 11 grandkids. In Bible college, I was in a time of prayer, and uh, my good friend, Doug Inga, uh, a native Aleut man that I built a close friendship with, we commercial fished together, and he had had a, uh, they found a huge tumor in his stomach and it had spread to other parts of his body and uh, was permeated through his body. And man, I, when I heard that, my soul was just burdened for my friend and I went into a time of prayer and fasting for him. And I'll always remember the second, the moment that I got the assurance from God that my friend Doug was gonna be healed. That was back in, that was a long time ago. A year later, he would end up being best man in my wedding, and I just talked with him this week as he celebrated his 71st birthday. Even in times of tremendous personal disappointment, we don't get, uh, you know, uh, just go past go and, and, and not experience landing on the boardwalk of disappointment. We all have those times. It was December of 1999, and I'd been uh, working for three years as a youth minister and associate minister at a church in, in Anchorage, Alaska, and and the plan was that after a three-year period, which was coming up right then, that I was going to be set in as the senior pastor of the church. And I always remember coming into that meeting and uh, the, the leaders telling me, you're not ready for this. And I said, well, then what do I do to need to get ready? What do I need to work on? And they said, actually, we don't believe you're the man for this. And I want to tell you, how many have ever experienced disappointment in your life when you think something's going to happen and you have these plans for it and you feel like you're walking in God's will towards something and then it's like the carpet gets pulled out from under you, right? I went into a time of prayer and fasting and that's when the Holy Spirit spoke to me to start a church in Wasilla, what is now Church on the Rock today. And I, I share this because 
Uh, disappointments can come our way, and I want you to know, maybe you are facing disappointment, but disappointment can become, can lead to the back door of your future destiny. And this is why we pray and fast. What I'm trying to say is that we need to posture ourselves in a position of humility before the Lord, because the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds, taking down every imagination that opposes the knowledge of God. It's a spiritual warfare that we are in. And so as we fast in this first week, and we'll put this on the screen, actually the whole four weeks that are coming up, this week we're going to be focusing on confession and to recognize the spiritual hunger within us. And we're going to go on to have a focus on praise and petition and gratitude. But confession is so necessary. You must be willing to tell the doctor what is wrong if you want the doctor to make it right. How many know what I'm talking about? You got to be willing to tell the doctor what is wrong. With our, we got to tell God what's wrong with our attitudes, our actions, even sinful behavior. And actually, that is at the core of our confession. Things that block communion and fellowship with Him and others. This is confession. It's a time where we set aside something in the physical to gain something in the spiritual. Fasting can be defined as this. Fasting is the abstaining from food and drink for a specific period of time. Fasting is designed to humble us and to draw us closer to God. Fasting is simply hungering for God. What fasting is not, it's not a form of penance. It's not a way to curry favor from God through some self-imposed suffering. Fasting is not you needing to get re-saved, to get saved again, like many people think they need to do when they've fallen into sin, but they have known Christ. When you are in Christ, you are a new creation. Judicially, you can stand before God Almighty knowing that your record of sin has been erased and you have the gift of eternal life. So why do we fast? Zechariah 7, 5, and 6 says, Ask all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seven months for the past 70 years, was it really for me that you fasted, says God? And when you were eating and drinking, were you not feasting for yourselves? What God is saying is that you were not fasting for me, and you were not really even feasting for me. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, do it with all your heart unto the Lord. The reason we fast is for the Lord, to connect with God Almighty. When you choose to intentionally give up the physical to gain the spiritual, we do that for God. Remember, fasting is hungering for God. I'll tell you what, hunger will drive you. When you're hungry, it will drive you. And we see some tragic stories, some stupid stories, and some tragic ones in the Bible of people that were hungry and what they did. Esau was out hunting, and he comes back from hunting, and he must have been on a hunt for like two weeks or something, like almost in the outback of Alaska, hadn't eaten, and he comes in famished, and he sees his brother Jacob, who's over there in the kitchen, Chef Jacob, cooking this red stew, and 
he's so hungry and he tells his brother, give me some of that stew. And Jacob, the conniver, the deceiver, always ready to make a deal. He says, all right, I'll give you some of this stew if you sell it to me or you sell your birthright to me, I'll give you a pot of stew. And Esau says, man, uh, what good is my birthright going to do for me having twice the inheritance if I die? So he makes the deal and Jacob gives him some lentil beans and some bread in a stew. Another tragic story in 2 Kings chapter 6 and 7, Samaria, the capital city of Israel at that time, the kingdom of Israel had been divided into Judah and Israel and and the city is besieged by the Arameans, and it gets so bad that famine, as they're around the, uh, the city of Samaria, famine hits the city hard. And the Bible tells us that donkeys' heads were selling for 80 shekels of silver. That's how hungry people got. People got so hungry that there's even a story in the Bible, it's an awful story of a woman that comes to the king and says, I made a deal with this lady that... Uh, today we would eat my child and the next day we would eat her child and now she won't give me her child. I mean, it's amazing what is in the B-I-B-L-E. <laughs> These stories. Four lepers at the entrance of the city gate, they said, man, we're just going to die of this famine. They, they come up with this amazing thought in their mind, let's go out to the army and if they, <laughs> if they accept us in, we'll live. And if they don't, they'll kill us and we'll die. Like real profound reasoning there, but that was the reasoning. And they go out there and the army had been scattered by God and they're there and, and God brings provision at a time of great tragedy for the city. What I'm trying to say is that hunger will drive a person. Hunger is an incredible power and a force. This isn't just an Old Testament practice. Jesus even declared to his disciples, he said, in my absence, after my death, burial, and resurrection, you will fast until I come again. And I'll tell you what, the, you see the news nowadays, and you know the, the scriptures of prophecy. How many know it's getting close to the second return of Jesus Christ, amen? And so what a time to be entering into this new year, 21 days focus of prayer and fasting. And so the disciples would fast in their lives. Now, over the years, I've had many experiences speaking in a platform like this, and even when I pastored, and, and all of a sudden, a baby will start crying and howling. And right now would be the perfect moment for this to happen. A, a baby will start crying and, and howling, and it can become a distraction for the mother that brought that child. It can become a distraction as it goes on and on to those around, and sometimes even for the speaker. You know, I, I honestly, it never bothered me. I just would get louder, and it didn't bother me because, uh, I mean, I just thought of all that that young mother had gone through, the, the courage and the work and through, after the whole week, and it's not easy, especially whatever it was today, like negative five, it warmed up 10 degrees or 15 degrees, hallelujah, yippee-ki-yay, you know, and, and, and through all that has to be done just to try to get to a church service, and so a baby can cry. And by the way, those young mothers that come, especially single mothers, you are the heroes of the church raising your children in the fear of the Lord and the ways of God. Now, a baby can cry for many reasons, but many times that baby is simply hungry and letting that mother know. And if the baby is both hungry and desperate, 
it can turn a service out. Amen? And many times we'll take a pacifier, won't we? And we'll put the pacifier in the mouth of the baby to shut it up. It's meant to pacify the baby. It is meant to be fake food for that child. And it doesn't benefit that child at all nutritionally. A pacifier is fake. It's designed to make you think something is happening when it's really not. Because you're performing the duty of sucking and sucking and sucking. Trying to receive nutrition. Tragically, there's so many people that are doing this. Sucking on pacifiers in the church. Going through performing religious duties. The way you know if you're just on a pacifier is if you are still hungry. Now God does want us to be hungry for Him. A hunger that is satiated through a relationship that comes through prayer and even times of prayer and fasting. And we really want to emphasize, Pastor Jonathan said, David, what we're really trying to emphasize, and I wholeheartedly agree, is that this is about prayer, about connecting with God Almighty as we lay aside this incredible driving force of a need in our life of hunger, to lay that aside to receive from the Lord himself that hunger from God. And this is why we focus on prayer. This is why Jesus in John chapter 4, after disciples go into this Samaritan town and and as they're going on the way in to get some, we discover later that they were trying to get some lunch. It was about noontime that day and they were all incredibly hungry and they go into this Samaritan town to get some lunch and as they were going in, they must have passed this lady coming, this woman coming out to the well to draw water from that well. And, and normally a woman wouldn't go in the heat of the day, the middle of the day, but obviously she was doing it because she didn't want to have contact with people. She was very ashamed of her life. And while she's there, Jesus looks at her and says, hey, could you give me a drink? And she goes, why are you even talking to me? Don't you know who I am? I'm a Samaritan woman. Yeah, I know who you are. He was actually, if you would ask me, I would give you living water that would spring up forever in your soul. And man, she gets intrigued and then he reads her mail and unpacks her whole life of all the husbands she's had and even the man you're with now, he's not even your husband. And, and then the greatest verse on worship, the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. And man, she, her world is getting rocked. And right as she's wrapping up conversation with Jesus, the disciples are making their way back to that well from being in town and they're carrying their sack lunches. And, and the Bible says they see him talking with this woman, but none dared ask him what he was doing. I mean, they, they knew they would get rebuked. And so she heads into town and, and they're like, Hey, Jesus, we got some food for you. And he says, I have food to eat that you know not of. And man, they're like, and they start talking amongst themselves. They're like, what? Did somebody bring him a steak while we were gone? What was What's happened? Where did he get that? Who came by? Where did he get his food? And it's not in the Bible, but I'm sure it's in between the verses where Jesus is thinking, man, they just don't get it. And then the whole town comes back out because one woman that went in with a testimony and lived on mission when these 12 disciples that were on a missionary trip didn't do what they were called to do. And the whole town comes out and Jesus says to his disciples, lift up your eyes for the fields 
or wait to harvest. You say it's four more months, but I'm telling you, look at what's happening out here. The, the harvest is now. And so the purpose of us being in a time of prayer and fasting, even Jesus there on that day in a, a time of fasting in his life, is so that we will be a part of the purposes of God in redeeming people that are living in darkness, that are living far away from God, that are living in disappointment and don't have a Savior to comfort them. Amazing story. What I'm trying to say is we cannot allow our faith to become inactive. Your faith becomes radically active when you're in those times of focused prayer and fasting and the mission becomes clear and and we're reminded that our motive must be love our mission is to make disciples and, and and to go out and to heal those that are broken it's a great story in the old testament about this practice of fasting and the burden that comes with it for what is going on at large with the people of god it's a story of fasting in the palace it's a story of nehemiah if your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn right now to Nehemiah chapter 1. And Nehemiah is called the Old Testament James. When you read Nehemiah, you see that faith and prayer go together, that faith and works go together. They cannot be separated in our lives. You know, we're emphasizing as we fast that we're laying aside something of earth, something of the physical for something that is more valuable, the spiritual. But I want you to know, both the spiritual and the physical are of value in this world. And you cannot separate them. To try to separate them is like just trying to oar down a rapid river with just one oar on one side. It don't work too good. I always remember my dad and I were coming down after a moose hunt years ago, and we were in the lead navigating down, and we had just gone down. Actually, it's quite a while of rapids you go down through, and then there was a bad shoot, and uh, raft is overloaded, and uh, and I look back, and my son is in this tiny, narrow, long, like blow up canoe thing, and he's overloaded. And all of a sudden, one of his oars comes shooting out, and he's trying to come down through the chute with one oar, and he's hollering. And man, so we just pull over and we just watch the show. You know, I mean, what can we do? You can't really do nothing. It's just getting ready to yard him out if he flips and. He gets down there, hey, why didn't you guys do something? We're like, what could we do? But hey, it was a good show, and you made it, and looks like you got your oar back after it. Man, trying to separate the physical and the spiritual, trying to separate work and, and, and prayer, work and faith. It's like trying to drive around here in the valley this, <laughs> this winter with not having all-wheel drive. It just don't work too good. I mean, our Honda two-wheel drive vehicles just stayed in the garage almost the entire winter. I told my dad that. He's like, what's going on? I'm like, dad, you've been gone missing all this fun stuff up here. It just, I mean, what, what in the Arctic living is going on here in Wasilla? It's like we got moved above the Arctic Circle. And so we must know some information about the time, the setting of Nehemiah the man. It was a time where 445 B.C., right about that time, before Christ's death, and uh, there's already been a couple of remnants that have gone back to Jerusalem through Zerubbabel about 90 years prior to this. 160 years before this, uh, the Babylonians came and took Judah. If you go back 500 years, David would have been sitting on the throne 
A thousand years, Moses was leading the people out of Egypt, and 1,400 years before this time, Abraham was making his journey to what would become the promised land for the people of God. It's just a generation after Esther was queen, and actually, historically, it's the, the last book of the Old Testament. Even, uh, even chronologically, he was a contemporary of Malachi and Ezra, and many Bible scholars say this would be chronologically the last book of the Old Testament. It's a time where there's great sorrow in Jerusalem because of the condition of Jerusalem, that the walls were in disarray. The walls had not been rebuilt even after being there for 90 years. There was great hardship because of that. The people of God could be attacked by enemies, and they were afflicted, and they were very discouraged, and they were living in disgrace. And so Nehemiah finds out about this, and Nehemiah, this man, in the midst of all this, we have Nehemiah. He's not a priest. He's not a, a king. He's not a prophet. He's not from royalty. He's simply a common man, but he's God's man at the right place at the right time. He's an uncommon, he's a, just what people would say, just a, a common man, but he has an uncommon perspective of who God is and what God can do. And the Persian king Artaxerxes must have noticed these special qualities in Nehemiah because he puts them in this honored place of being the cupbearer. Now, a cupbearer in those days would not only pour the drink and bring the food to the king, he would taste it at times to make sure it was okay for the king to eat, and he was in charge of all the kitchen staff and all the dining and all, the, all that took place in the dining room. He was in charge of all of this, and many times a cupbearer would become an advisor to the king. Nehemiah was honest. He has access to the king. He's the right man at the right place at the right time. And I want to tell you, when you are in Christ, no matter where you are, no matter where you work, no matter where you are placed in your life, you are God's man. You are God's woman at this time to do his will. Nehemiah chapter 1, we'll pick up and read. In the month of Kislev, about the ninth month of the year, it would be like our... Uh, October, it'd be like our November, actually, the 11th month of the year. In the 20th year, when I was at the citadel of Susa, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. And they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province, in other words, those who had been taken into exile and now have returned... In the province are in great trouble and disgrace. And there's many in our community that are living in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And when I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. Catch this. I confess the sins we Israelites including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, 
saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen, chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. And Nehemiah simply states, I was cupbearer to the king. Do you, do you notice the, the concern and the, uh, and the burden that Nehemiah has as soon as he hears the update on what is going on in Jerusalem? But sometimes we need to Notice what is not said by a Bible character. He does not say to these men, oh man, bummer, too bad. <laughs> what could one person ever do? He doesn't say, you know, I wish I had some time to get involved and to help with this. He doesn't say, you know what, God is sovereign and he can just choose to work through anybody else if he so pleases, I'm not going to get involved. No, he knows immediately this burden hits him and he has to be involved with the crisis. And it starts in prayer and fasting. Nehemiah sees, sees the need and he takes action. Every need needs, needs one person who cares. Just one. Maybe you're walking out of here today and you see a, a coffee cup that's just sitting there laying by the front door and Man, don't just be thinking, what slob would have done that? Man, if you see that thing, just grab it and throw it in the trash can. Don't need to worry about that slob. I don't need you worrying about me if I'm the one that left it there. <laughs> Every need needs one person who cares. We're not all going to see the same needs. We're, we're not all called to do every task or every assignment. And that's why what we do, we do collectively as the people of God and the church. That's why we come together to worship and to pray together as a congregation and to work together in the work of God. None of us sees all the needs. We'll, we'll all be doing different jobs. And make sure that you're a part of the team that builds up instead of part of the team that tears down. Man, social media, if it's, if it's done one thing, it's done this. Man, it has given people a platform to try to tear down everything they don't like and attack everything they don't like. You know, a great New Year's resolution would be uh, for 2024, be Captain Optimism on social media, all right? Just speak blessing and peace and, and goodness to people. An outcome of prayer and fasting is that we will be part of a team in unity that builds together in unity. In verse 4, we see how Nehemiah responds to the sad news. He wept, the Bible says. I want to ask you, what do you cry about? Nehemiah wasn't frustrated. He wasn't effeminate. He was a man's man, but he wept in sorrow over the condition and the report that he heard about Jerusalem and the people of God and the city's gates. The Bible says he mourned. This, this was a sadness of some length. Some things are wrong and they need to grip your spirit in a way that you don't, you don't leave just 10 minutes after you hear about it. And by the way, when you go into prayer and fasting and you enter into that, you can't do that from 10 p.m. to 6 or 7 a.m., all right? That's called sleeping, okay? All right? <laughs> it was a sadness of some length. 
And then the Bible says he fasted. He is preparing his spirit. He's not trying to do a cleanse. He's not trying to lose 15 or 20 pounds. He's trying to connect to the heart of God and, and to cry out to God in faith that God would work. Faith is being imparted by God to him in this time. And then he prayed. Prayer has to come very early in the burden of God when your spirit is troubled, when you're, you're in a difficult situation or circumstance, or you see that around you and you experience the darkness that is around. We can learn much from Nehemiah. We can get so much from what he prayed, the elements of his, of his prayer. First of all, his attention is towards God. You notice he says, he starts off, God, you are the awesome and great God. He highlights God. You ever met somebody that everything was awesome? Man, Kurt, awesome beard, awesome shoes, awesome pants, man, awesome jewelry, bro, awesome, awesome, awesome. Man, if everything is awesome, nothing is awesome, right? And so he highlights God. He takes out his highlight pen and says, God, you are awesome. You are the great God. You're all inspiring Nehemiah highlights God. And then his confession is that we have sinned. I hope you caught that. We have sinned. As a nation, I have sinned. My father's family have sinned. He includes himself in this. And that's part of, of, of what we're wanting to do in this time as we're in a time of prayer and fasting is including ourselves with the people of God to confess our lack and our sin. He doesn't just water it down with, well, you know, we sort of got off track and kind of made a couple of mistakes this year. You know, yeah, I could have done better. I'll try to, you know, buckle up next year. And it's not a bucket up little camper type of prayer. It's no, we have sinned. We've acted corruptly. Fasting is supposed to say that the spiritual is the most important thing in our lives. And that combined with the physical, we can accomplish the work of God. Fasting says that man shall not live by bread alone. Jesus said those words. It was in the, the pre-video of this. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that is proceeding, currently coming out of, in the Greek, the mouth of God. What is God saying? Man, I love the fact that we have his word and he speaks through his word, but God also wants to speak to us through other people in the church and from his spirit directly to our spirit. We must face our sin if we want to see God's solutions. We have to face our sin if we want to see God's solutions. And so Nehemiah is spiritually humbling himself in this posture of repentance. Psalm 66, 18 says, The one who harbors wickedness in his heart will not hear from God. Why confess? Because we can't ignore the real issue. We must face the truth. Anybody have a bathroom scale or one somewhere in your house, a scale? Man, that scale. Tell you what, I had to go, was in at the doctor here in Alaska, had to get a new doctor and was there in the month of June. And uh, she looked at me and, and uh, she said, David, we got to do something here. Um, she said, you know, it's really great you got all these grandkids, but if you want to live long enough to hang out with them, we need to get you to drop some weight. And so she started me on a program and it's been going slow, but about 40 pounds came off until December hit. And then stuff wasn't going right. I could tell. And I was trying to avoid the scale. You ever, anybody ever been there? You're just trying to avoid the scale. You know, you're, 
you know, you've done so good and then you know things are going the wrong way. And, and one day turns into three days, five days a week, then two weeks. And, and my conscience started telling me, David, get on the scale. She's five foot six, brown hair, got green eyes. She has a loud voice. David, why are you avoiding the scale? Lorraine said, it's because I, I, I just didn't want to see the truth. Remember, you must be willing for the doctor to find out what's wrong in order for the doctor to make it right. When you want to remodel a, a house or a part of the house, you got to tear the old out, right, in order for the remodel to take effect and to be finished. And then his confession, he persists in prayer. Says he, he was in mourning and prayer for quite a while. He persists in prayer because of what he's going to be asking the king, this great request that he's going to ask in the next chapter and concerning the people and the condition of Jerusalem. And he continues in this because of the desire in his heart. And I have to believe that Nehemiah had access to Isaiah's writings and the scrolls of Isaiah, and he knew what Isaiah said in Isaiah 58, a passage I'm sure he was aware of, of what true fasting and prayer are. It's the single longest passage in the scripture about fasting. And Isaiah writes that the people had a question for God. Isaiah 58.3, they tell God, why have we fasted? They say, and you have not seen it. Now they're accusing God. Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? In other words, we come to you, we tell you what we want. We tell you what we need. We tell you our desires, but nothing is happening. We have done the duty and fulfilled all of this of what you've required, but heaven is not answering us. So the people were doing the duty. And because they were going through the motions in Isaiah's day, God has some questions for them. Very Jewish thing. Somebody asks a question and a person will respond with a question to answer their question. Isaiah 53, verses, last part of verse 3 and through 5. Yet on the day of your fasting, God is speaking. You do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. And here's the beginning of the questions. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves outwardly. Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is this what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? The question God has is, is this the fast that I choose? Not the one that you choose, but the one that I have chosen. He goes on to say, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go, righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. Hallelujah. And you will cry for help and he will say, here am I. If you go away with the yoke of oppression, if you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness 
and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. And I have to think Nehemiah is thinking of this prophecy. And you will be called repair of broken walls, restore of streets with dwellings. So why do we fast? We fast to loosen the chains of injustice, <laughs> to set the oppressed free, to help the poor, to give aid in our community. This confession, Lord, remember your promises, remember your covenant, that if we return to you, you would return us to your chosen place. This petition is a great one. Why? Because he's about to go in and talk to King Artaxerxes for what would be the unheard of. And he goes into the king's presence in Nehemiah chapter 2, and as he's with him, the king notices this burden, something that something is troubling him, that there must have been a sadness or a, a, a despondency on his face, a, a, a very much a concern, and that's something that a cupbearer could be killed for. You were always supposed to be pleasant and upbeat and happy as a cupbearer. And the king, the Bible says, the queen sitting next to him says to Nehemiah, what's going on? Why do you look so troubled? Man, Nehemiah knows his life is on the line. And I love this in Nehemiah chapter 2. He makes one more quick prayer. God, help me. Be with me. Give me the right words to say. Give me favor before the king. And, and he gives the king this big ask. He says, hey, I, I'm going to need some letters. I need letters to get lumber <laughs> to take back to rebuild these, these, these walls and to rebuild things in the city. I need letters to, to help me with safety and protection and letters for once I get there that you've authorized me to go and to do this work. And by the way, that obviously is going to mean that I'm going to need the next about 16 years off of my life to go to do this work and then to be there and oversee it. So the king incredibly says, yeah, Let's do it. You're going to go. And he gives Nehemiah the letters in Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah has a relationship with God. He blends the practical with the spiritual. He's the right man at the right place at the right time. He knows when to fast and pray. He knows when to act and when to work. He was a man who saw the need and had a vision to see that need met, and he received those letters from the king. I want to tell you, you have a letter from the king today. <laughs> this letter can speak to us as we start in this 21 days of prayer and fasting. I want God to speak to me in every way he can, and I'll be doing some fasting in the daytimes, but I know he can speak to me in dreams and in visions in the night. He can speak to me through people that he brings into my life, and he can speak from his spirit to his spirit, but we've been given this letter from the king. So my last question today for you is, what is your confession today? What is your confession? We're going to have Holy Communion in just a little bit, but I want you to stand with me, and I want to lead us in the first service in some prayers, starting off with a prayer of confession. We can just posture our, our hearts towards the Lord. God, our awesome 
and great God, we want to highlight You today. You're so good. God, we confess You are the one true God. We also confess our sins. God, I confess my sins. Lord, instead of worship, we worry. Instead of grieving with hope, we gripe in unbelief. Instead of acknowledging you're taking something away from our lives and accepting it by faith as a part of your perfect plan, we harbor bitterness to others and towards you. We even at times begin to distrust you. We say things like, God, I've served you and I've sacrificed for you, Lord, and this is what you give me in return? Oh, Lord, have mercy on our self-righteous hearts today. You've treated us better than our sins deserve. How often we forget that. Lord, we acknowledge that we can be a double-minded people. We bless you with our lips, but with the same mouth we curse others who are made in your image. God, we repent of this today. Lord, you tell us in your word, to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. And you tell us not to be anxious about tomorrow. And yet we come up with so many reasons every day of why you don't understand our tomorrow. We have the audacity to tell you that our world today and all its problems are greater than anyone else has ever faced. Father, have mercy on us. Our minds need to be renewed so we can Think your thoughts, to think about your purposes. Lord, instead of being quick to listen, we are quick to defend ourselves. Instead of seeking to love others, we demand to be heard by others. Convict us in our pride today, oh God, convict us where pride has established a root in our hearts and create in us your humility. and a peacemaking spirit. God, some of us are more fearful of dying than we are concerned with sinning against you. Facing the reality of mortality is a sobering, sobering thought. Remind us this morning, O Lord, that in Christ we are more than conquerors through you who has loved us because of all that you've done for us through Christ's death. Our sins are forgiven today. Lord, you tell us in your word that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Yet many times we are impatient with those who are weeping and hurting. God, give us a heart of empathy for these people. God, give us an ability to comfort and to nurture those that are in difficult places. Lord, we simply say, forgive us of our sin. Cleanse us of our pride and our stubbornness. Forgive us where we charge you with wrong. God, we also want to just say we're grateful and we thank you and we bless you, oh God. You are good, the giver of every good and perfect gift. Jesus, we thank you for salvation. Holy Spirit, we appreciate the role that you have in our lives of leading us guiding us, instructing us, 
comforting us. So God, as we enter this 21 days of prayer and fasting, Lord, I pray that you would speak to every man and woman and child that is here today. God, as we seek you, that we would have communion with you, O God. Thank you for listening. For more of our podcasts and to discover how you can connect, visit us at churchak.org or download our Church on the Rock AK app from either iTunes or Google Play.